We asked for your questions about objectivist philosophy, and you submitted them. Answering your questions on philosophy is something we're making a regular feature of this podcast. Today is our sixth installment of this series. Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Sam Weaver, junior fellow at ARI, and with me are Aaron Smith, fellow and instructor at ARI, and Mike Mazza, associate fellow at ARI. Welcome, Aaron and Mike. Thanks, Hi, Sam. Thanks for being here. Uh, the first question or the first issue that uh, we wanted to raise today is one that actually several people asked us about. And so a question that sort of combines what, uh, what these different questioners were interested in is the following. How much should objectivists value physical health, diet, and exercise? <laughs> so uh, I should say at the outset, uh, I am neither a dietary nutrition or an exercise <laughs> specialist or a health professional. And I think none of us really are here. So the advice or perspective we're offering here is coming from uh, more from a philosophic perspective than anything else. Um, and I think I should just say something about the context of the question. I think that um, if, you, if you know anything about objectivism or if you've read up about objectivism, Objectivism takes uh, man's life uh, very seriously. And in the context of morality, uh, it treats man's life as the standard of moral value. So this is a kind of, it's a big deal in objectivism. And if you want to read more about that, the essay, The Objectivist Ethics by Ayn Rand is, is, is worth getting into. Um, but I think that's part of the background of what, where the question is coming from. Objectivism holds that man's life is the standard of value. And in that context, if that's true, how much should we value things like physical health, fitness, diet, longevity, and so on? Um, I think <clears throat> the first thing to say, I mean, objectivism is a philosophy, it's a philosophic system, and it doesn't have dietary recommendations or exercise advice, or you should live X number of years, um, and so on. So as a philosophy, what it tells you to do is that if you wanna live successfully, you need to be rational. You need to be rational about your choices. You need to be rational about which values you pursue and the manner in which you pursue them. And that can include things like health and diet and your physical appearance and fitness and whatever. Um, but objectivism doesn't treat these as their ends in themselves because you know, life is what you're trying to achieve. Therefore, you should do X in fitness. It doesn't have advice on that. Uh, it says be rational about what you're doing. Um, in effect. So that's the more general point, I think I would say. So when it comes to, you know, uh, how seriously do we uh, take physical health? Uh, and part of the one aspect of the question that we got, it was, um, what does it say about a person who takes objectivism seriously, but cares little about their health, weight, diet, longevity, and so on? Um, I think if you literally don't care anything at all about your health, you know, you're sick or diseased and suffering or you're healthy, like you literally don't care. I mean, you don't really care much about your life. I mean, and then you have to ask why that is and that that's a real problem. Um, but if you, if you do love your life and you want to live it, you can ask the question. It makes sense to ask like, how important should things like this be? Should diet and exercise loom large or it's whatever, it's optional. And I think that just depends on a lot of different factors, I mean, for the person's values and so on. Um. Yeah, Aaron, I think one thing to keep in mind is that, especially when we're talking about 
health, exercise, longevity. Um, there's a context in which those things come up that's important to keep in mind. And that's that um, life ends and we're all, we all have to budget our time and, um, you know, and values accordingly. So if you're thinking about it's kind of like, well, uh, if I embark on this onerous exercise program, I'll likely uh, lengthen the time of life I have by three or four years. Um, how important is that to you? I mean, that's, there's not a universal answer to that. You have to think about the, the, um, the other things you have going on in your life, how much efforts involved. Now, if, if the payoff of a good exercise program or something like 20 extra years, then, then things would be different. So there's an issue of magnitude um, and time management here. And I mean, to, to talk about diet, suppose giving up your favorite food gave you an extra five years, would you give, give it up? I mean, I don't think there's a, there's an, a straightforward answer to that. I don't think I would. Um, if it gave me an extra 20 years, then I'd likely consider it. So, so all of these things um, make a difference to how you think about the value of diet and exercise in, in your life. Yeah, and it's, it's partly about managing, managing your various kinds of values and priorities. I know some people who don't care, we're talking about food, I love food, but we were talking about food. And I saw people that just really don't care about food. Like they could say, I know a guy who was like, if I could just take a pill like on Star, Star Trek or whatever, and that's my nutrition, <laughs> that they would do it. Uh, so maybe they, they wouldn't care and they could give up all sorts of stuff, uh, butter and bacon and who knows whatever, you know, some people have criticized and so on. Um, but it, that depends on how important these things are to your life. Um, another aspect of the question we got was, is it possible to care about objectivist ideas of living the best and longest life you can uh, and give your own physical health low priority? Uh, well, first of all, just to correct something in the question, objectivism doesn't say that you should live the longest life possible. So there's that's nowhere in objectivism is, you know, it's you're aiming at longevity. Uh, as, a, as an end, in effect. So I wouldn't package best and longest life uh, together as a, a single goal. Um, but it also depends what do you mean by giving your physical health low priority? Like you refuse to go to the doctor. If your liver's failing, you're like, yeah, whatever. Like, I mean, if you're young and it's you have a life in front of you, it's like, that's one thing. But if you mean giving it a low priority, you're like not a health nut or you're reading up on books on diet and and all of, and you spend a lot of time doing that, and you're you're on a work program, and you're on some paleo diet or whatever it is. It's like you, it, it's the person who doesn't treat it like that. I don't think that's giving health a low priority. Um, and health is wider, I think, than things like fitness. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for example, like yeah, uh, there's, there's I exercise a bit, um, but. I don't follow any kind of diet. Not that I'm the model <laughs> uh, for anybody, but uh, I mean, I probably eat too much, uh, but I love eating. It's one of the great enjoyments of my life. And as Mike says, uh, you know, I think, he, I think he loves shellfish, but uh, for me, it's sushi and all sorts of food. But um, there are probably healthier ways maybe that I could eat if I really wanted to spend the time doing some real research. And there's a lot of conflicting stuff in the diet uh, literature. And so it's not exactly clear what I would follow anyway, if I'm trying to be rational, it's, you know, so I think I eat 
fairly sensitively, but I'm not doing like longevity calculations. But if I knew, uh, if I had good reason to think that this is really not healthy, it, or I would limit intake and, but I would, again, it wouldn't loom large, I think in my life, unless I thought it was really poisonous. And I think, I think there's a question uh, too about what exactly you mean when you say, well, I exercise to be healthier. So you can embark on a exercise program to be stronger. That might not actually make you live longer since the, the questioner also brought up longevity. Um, is a CrossFit athlete um, healthier than somebody whose average weight doesn't really exercise? I mean, in some sense, I, I guess so. They're, they're um, probably less likely to have a heart attack, they're stronger, those sort of things you hear about diet and exercise. Um, but are they more likely to live longer? I don't think that's true as far as I know. So it's just, it's important if you're thinking about these things as values to, to think about what am I really trying to accomplish in my exercise or am I trying to live longer? Am I trying to um, be stronger and less frail? Am I trying to look a certain way? It's all of those things could be considered, you know, healthy, um, but they're not all the same. It's, I've heard that <clears throat> extreme calorie restriction is, is correlated with long longevity. Um, and if that's true, I mean, then that probably means you can't be any kind of um, strength or endurance athlete. So is, what do you value there? Do you value looking strong and being strong or do you value increased number of years or, or what? Um, yeah. yeah, and another aspect of this question, uh, there are lots of aspects of the question because we got several <laughs> on this theme. And one was that uh, Ayn Rand's uh, kind of heroic characters tend to have a lean and healthy looks. Uh, did she have much to say explicitly about the priority given to you know, the care of the body and so on? And I think, no, I don't think she did, at least not to my knowledge. Uh, I mean, maybe uh, you know, Shoshana or someone who's writing a biography or something would know a little bit more about that, but I don't think so. But also, I think even if she did, there's a difference uh, here between Ayn Rand's views, like say on you know what she should eat or something and what objectivism has to say as a philosophy. And I think those are separate issues. So it, diet and fitness and stuff is, are not philosophic issues. They relate to philosophy in the sense that if you value them, it, it comes into the field of values and value pursuit and how rational you're being about it, but it doesn't have any kind of way. I mean, that's a specialized, those are specialized issues. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I exercise, um, but uh, mainly because I want to keep demanding something of my body. So it has to realize I need to, <laughs> I need to be ready for the task. Uh, so I, I mean, I'm, my 40s and stuff and I mean I want to be able to walk and hike and do things uh, you know into as far as I can in my old age so I need to demand something of myself but uh, again they're not they're not ends in themselves and just the fact that objectivism treats life as so central that it's you're optimizing for physical fitness and you're optimizing for longevity and you're optimizing for maximum health all other values set to one side is not important or something so uh, just to head off that sort of potential uh, perspective. Yeah, as, as far as the characters in the novels go, I think it's important to keep in mind that there's a lot that goes into creating a character, which isn't just philosophy, 
moral moral thinking. So um, they're Rand's characters, and if she liked, um, how did the questioner describe them? Lean and healthy looking. Um, if that's the kind of body shape she prefers, I mean, it makes sense that she'd make the characters that she likes look that way. That I mean, that can just be her preference. Right? It, it, there's yeah. there's aesthetic preference. Yeah, it doesn't that doesn't translate into there being some kind of um, moral virtue in staying lean or something like that. And also in literature, okay, now <laughs> a little tangent here, but <laughs> I think in literature too, um, there are certain things that are conveyed or projected by the physical appearance of, uh, I mean, somebody who's single-minded in their pursuit of purpose, like Rourke, Howard Rourke is like a stripped down character. Uh, in a way, he's just naked purpose, you know, and pursuit of a goal. And there's a sense in which there, there, there might be uh, an aesthetic relationship between the way she sees you know, the, the physical appearance of the character and um, what it would convey, you know, if he looked like he'd just been sitting on his couch all of his life, you know, so. <laughs> I can imagine Rourke forgetting, forgetting to eat because he's obsessively oh, he working over in something. Story. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like as a as a rule in his life, he just he eats infrequently because he's always working, and like you could convey yeah. that. I mean, that might show something that he's that he's like slim and lean is that he's not somebody who spends a lot of time. Um, yeah, and also like Kira in We the Living, also um, she forgets to eat, and she and I wonder if this is this might be something about Ayn Rand. I mean, again, she's mm -hmm. so devoted to her career and purpose. And uh, I, I don't know that she made a big deal about, you know, uh, food and cuisine and dinner. And I don't know that that loomed large in her life. I probably didn't. Um, and I, I don't think she exercised. Uh, I think she just, she was very single-minded in, in her purpose uh, and other things sort of would take a backseat. So uh, we've been talking a little bit about uh, about the kind of appearances of Ayn Rand's characters, and uh, that that connects to another issue that came up in in one of the other versions of this question was somebody discussed the kind of the idea of of being very co conscious of exercise and diet for the purpose of being as attractive as possible, like physically attractive. Um, and and this person wanted to know whether it's whether you think it's rational for a person to uh, value being physically attractive and sort of pursue that in their in their life through things like diet and exercise. I mean, I, I think it's valid to value your appearance and work on improving it. So um, this kind of question comes up more often with respect to diet and exercise. But if you're really talking about, is it valid to value your appearance? I mean, think about would you ask this question about, is it valid to want to dress well? Like, is that a value for you? I mean, that's your appearance. Is it valid to value um, having uh, a, a hairstyle that complements your best features or something? I, I mean, all, all of those kind of people, people wear makeup. Uh, it, that's all, uh, I mean, you can take great pride in your appearance and I, I don't see any reason why that couldn't be a, rational value for somebody. Now the questioner does say that they're, uh, I think the exact words were very conscious of it. So the question I would ask is, what does that really mean? Like, are you unhealthily obsessed with it? Like, so you get anxiety if you're out to eat and you can't find um, 
you know, chicken salad on the menu and instead you have to either eat nothing or eat a hamburger, like, does that give you panic attack? Uh, I mean, I, I know people who are that, um, that concerned about their diets and I don't, I don't think that's a, um, I mean, that indicate if you're, maybe if your career is tied around like your physical appearance, maybe that kind of concern is warranted, but if it's just a, like, no, I want to look as good as I can, then that seems to be a little bit of an unhealthy obsession about it. Um, but that you could say that about just about anything um, value could have a kind of neurotic approach to a otherwise legitimate value. So, um, yeah. And I think that relates to, you know, some of what the questioner was asking with regard to uh, his motivation for focusing on his appearance. And, uh, you know, whether it's kind of second-handed, you know, you're just trying to uh, um, get some sort of pseudo sense of self-esteem by other people's, you know, reflected uh, views on you as like, oh, they, 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 view, they think you're attractive. And so you feel like, oh, okay, I'm not a zero, right? Um, and in a way that's, um, it's too much dependent on the opinions of other people. Um, yeah, I mean, you could, you could have that sort of approach to your appearance. Um, and I think there's something really problematic with that because there's much, much more to you than your appearance. Uh, appearance is one aspect. Um, I mean, I would want to look as best as I could. I don't spend much time on it. <laughs> Maybe that's evident, <laughs> but I don't spend a lot of time on that. But particularly when you're a teenager, I think it's where you're really sensitive about that sort of thing. Um, people are starting to get interested in you sort of the, uh, attracted to people and you know it's that at that age i think it's you're really sensitive about it and you care a lot more about it um i think i don't know how true this is of people in general but i think the older you get to i think the more mature you become the more you become a deeper person and there's much more things in your life than just how i look but i think it is i think it's valuable i mean beauty is is a value and being attractive that's a value um but I don't think that one's motivation in that regard, like you're, you're trying to be fit and attractive and so on, um, should be, I think, as the questioner put it, uh, uh, is it the selfish pursuit of the most beautiful mate possible? Uh, I don't think that's a rational goal when it comes to choosing a romantic partner. I mean, hopefully I can get myself to uh, a point where someone would find me attractive. I would want that. Uh, and hopefully, you know, that if you, you're, you're looking for a romantic partner, you would want to be attracted to them, I think, and you would want to be attractive to them. Um, that's also a goal, but there's so much more to, and I don't think the question is exactly suggesting this, but there's so much more to choosing a partner than uh, there, are they a 10 or, you know, um, I think because once you start living with someone, you're not living with a sculpture, you're living with a person. And uh, it's the, who they are, what their character are, what they love and what they don't love. And just the whole uniqueness about who they are and what they are. I think, I think that um, is more important. And I'll say, so one other thing is there's a difference between beauty and attractiveness. Now, this is not objectivism. This is me talking. But there's a difference between beauty and attractiveness. And I think you can have some kind of, I think Ayn Rand did think there were some kind of standards for what beauty is. It's some kind of a symmetry, a harmony of parts. And there's something like that. But attractiveness is different. People can be attracted to people who you wouldn't think of as beautiful. I mean, physically attractive. Um, there are all sorts of different body types, faces, just looks. Uh, some people like long noses, short noses. I mean, it's, you sort of just pick random stuff. It's what 
also what what's attractive physically attractive about you is also part of who you are the kind of person you are are you witty are you funny do you love life and i think that can make you more physically attractive i think that's the way it works it's not simply you're like a cutout uh model or something and then that's all there is to it to, to physical attractiveness do you meet the standards of beauty at 7.5 or what it's there's much more that goes into attractiveness than than a kind of sculpture-like beauty that's perfection or something so uh, another issue that uh, came up in some of the discussion that i wanted to ask a, a follow-up question about is is this issue of longevity and i'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on whether kind of the the value that you place on longevity or how you think about this this whole kind of issue of health um is affected by the potential of life extension technology which may be on the horizon in the in the near future so i think it is uh, and i think that's probably why we get a lot of these questions because this is sort of in the in the news uh, recently um, life extension companies being invested in by people like Jeff Bezos. So, uh, and there are objectivists who talk a lot about life extension research. Um, I, I think it's, I think there's a, a reason to think that a lot of the um, way we think about um, health, exercise, diet, um, and then also Aaron was just talking about choosing a romantic partner. In other podcasts, we've talked about choosing a career. I think a lot of those things would have to be uh, rethought um, if there's radical life extension. So if you're talking about a lifespan of several hundred years or an indefinite lifespan, um, especially if you're just kind of like frozen at the physical appearance of, say, being 30 years old, um, that's relevant to what we're talking about with uh, you know, physical appearance and things like that. So yeah, all, all of these or most of the things we've been talking about we're coming at from the context of uh, there is a human lifespan and it's it, there's an arc to it like you kind of physically reach a kind of peak and then there's a gradual decline as you age um, and if those things change then uh, how you think about your values uh, will change uh, too yeah Aaron, the, the kind of planning issues? yeah the kind of planning that you do and the kind of thinking about your life is it all within the context of a perspective on a lifespan uh, and if that perspective changed uh yeah i mean maybe even some of your dietary things would change but i can i can get away with the cholesterol intake or whatever it is you know that i have if i'm thinking i'm going to die at like 85 then if if i pursued the same course of action and i knew i was going to be to 200 you know maybe and relatively healthy i mean i would need to adjust but I don't know a lot about that kind of research. I mean, I've, I've read some things, but I'm not, I can't comment on that. It's, I think it's still a little in the realm of science fiction, um, you know, until there's actual results. But I, I do think it's, uh, it's legitimate to raise the question because of, yeah, because of the direction that the technology seems to be going. Yeah. Uh, so one more kind of issue on this this topic of health and and longevity, things like that. Um, there was a related question that came in that was um, about basically asked, uh, what if someone chooses to maintain certain qualities in life for longer, but at the potential risk of a shorter overall life and kind of gave some examples of people who engage in kind of like risky 
uh, activities like uh, like free climbing or uh, and smoking and uh, all things like that. Um, and the questioner was wondering if if these individuals can are the individuals who are doing this are they in conflict with the idea of life as the standard of morality? I think it depends on what's motivating somebody in, in taking risk because everything in life is, has some risk um, and some risks are greater than others. But the, the question is that's relevant, I think is, uh, so take the, take the free climber example since the questioner brought that up. Um, free climbing is you know, rock climbing, mountain climbing without any safety gear. Uh, that's how I understand it. Or I think it could also include these people who climb like buildings and um, so what exactly is the source of the enjoyment there? Because if it's just the climbing, you could get the same enjoyment with, with your harness and your safety material. Um, and if the idea is like, well, I want to climb this mountain without slipping once. Um, and if I do it free, then I can like prove that I've done it, you know, if I get to the top. Um, but you could do the same thing with gear. It was just like keep, you know, have somebody keep a watch on you. Yeah, he never slipped. So he made it to the top without slipping. I think what makes those activities appealing to a lot of people is that it's like laughing in the face of death. Um, and that's, I don't think of a valid motivation. At very, very least, it's not a healthy one to say, why, why was that so enjoyable? Because I could have died. That's why it was enjoyable. Like, uh, I don't know, I don't know about that. Um, uh, but if, you know, there are risky activities, the pleasure of which isn't really the, the risk, it's the, act, it's the activity. Like I like um, the physical exertion and the challenge of climbing this mountain and I like being outdoors and I like, you know, I like the, you know, all the different reasons people go hiking, climbing, uh, mountaineering, um, they're not, not, really about oh maybe i'll die it's, no this is this is fun so yeah and and you can contrast that too with um careers that are dangerous uh and very high risk like uh, you're a firefighter um or you're a policeman or you're like a uh, or you're in the military you're a career military uh professional um all of these uh involve a lot of risk but there's an actual career there. It's not that I'm trying to cheat death. You're pursuing a career. Like these are valid goals. So it's uh, to be involved in the police force. You're trying to maintain law and order to protect people's rights, to protect people from harm and so on. These are valid pursuits and same with uh, firefighting. Uh, and you could take also things like, uh, uh, I know uh, Dr. Leonard Peacock <clears throat> discusses this kind of, he presents an answer to this kind of question in a Q&A period in his lecture, uh, Objectivism, the State of the Art. And he was asked a question, something like this, and he brought up the example of, uh, what was his first name, Jaeger? You know, the, he's a test pilot. Chuck Yeager. Chuck, he was one of the, Chuck Yeager. Chuck Yeager, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I read a book about him, but it was very interesting. But um, I mean, he's the uh, first, first person that's like fly supersonic and, and the, it, it was dangerous. I mean, it was really, but he's pursuing the he's pushing the edges and the boundaries of of knowledge and testing and uh, equipment and uh, and it's a real career that he loved and it wasn't just he was going out for kicks um, because you have to draw the line between are you engaged in something risky whether you're pursuing a genuine value 
and or are you just flirting with death? Uh, and I think that's irrational. It just if you're just out to flirt with death and haha, I cheated it this time. Uh, I think that's just irrational. You're toying with your mm -hmm. your life. Mm -hmm in ways that it's not like, well, I like bacon and I, <laughs> it's, it's, that's not the same thing. Um, yeah. And I, we, we, I don't want to get into drawing lines, like how many cigarettes can you have and it's something like that, but you have to think about that as an individual, like what, what is, what is a rational calculation of the risk involved? Um, and are you really pursuing something that you can justify in reason that this is a valid goal? There are some risks. I've thought about the risks, and this this makes sense to pursue. Uh, versus, nah, I really shouldn't be doing this. Uh, that you have to figure out. Let's move on to the second issue we wanted to discuss today. Uh, so we got a question about uh, basically, can values be objective if they depend on human evaluations? And the questioner also presented us with, with an argument that they wanted us to comment on. And I think we're gonna put that up on the screen. Um, do we have that? Okay, there it is. Uh, yeah, so this, this argument goes, uh, if, there's, if there is no sentient life in the universe, then there is no value either. It follows that all value ultimately originates from sentient beings and their perspectives on reality. Since value is necessarily perspective dependent from the viewpoint of sentient beings, it is thus impossible for value to be objective by the definition of objective. If objective value doesn't exist, then it is necessarily the case that objective morality cannot exist either. Morality is therefore subjective since it is based on value, which is based on the perspectives of sentient life, QED. Um, so perspectives on this argument and, and the issues around it. Um, so the, I think the first thing we wanted to bring up is that there's a, well, Aaron, I think Aaron, you're going to talk about the way the argument conceives the objective, um, that it, I mean, we should, maybe we should, uh, we should, maybe we should just say one thing here, just at the outset yeah. uh, is objectivism, hence the name <laughs> objectivism, <laughs> um, holds that morality is objective, that values are objective. So that's, it's taking a stand on a position. I think Have we lost Aaron, Aaron? Did Aaron froze for you? I think we lost Aaron. Uh, yeah. Okay, so, well, while we wait for Aaron to return, let me just say what I was uh, going to say. So <clears throat> I think what Aaron will say when he returns is that the question, um, is working with a view of what objective means that objectivism does not um, accept or agree uh, agree with. Um, so I think the operating view of objective in this question is what objectivism would call um, an intrinsic theory of value. And the idea of that is that um, that values are independent of anyone's perspective or valuing of them. Um, if there were no, as the questioner puts it, if there were no sentient 
beings, there would be uh, still there would still be value uh, according to this intrinsic view of value. So um, to give an example, uh, I once read something by a somewhat prominent philosopher, Colin McGinn, who argued that if there were no human beings or sentient beings anymore, uh, the Mona Lisa would still be beautiful. It would still have great aesthetic value. So that's an, that's an intrinsic theory of value. There's something out there independent of anybody that is value or valuable and will remain that way apart from, um, from anyone. And that's not the, uh, that's not how objectivism uh, conceives uh, value or uh, objectivity. So about the argument itself, um, I think one of the first things I want to say about it is that the argument as presented is, uh, it assumes what it's trying to prove, or in other words, it's question begging. So the first premise of the argument, this statement, if there is no sentient life in the universe, then there is no value either. That says the same thing as the conclusion. That yeah. is, <laughs> that is yeah. values tied to the subject, um, <clears throat> necessarily tied to the subject. So I, I don't think this is a good argument against an intrinsic <clears throat> theory of value. So even though objectivism agrees that it's not true that value is just out there independent of any, any uh, valuer, um, I don't think this is a good argument um, against that position. Uh, Aaron, welcome back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry, my, my internet froze. My existence was merely subjective. Uh, this, is, this is me again. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, uh, so I think there's also, I mean, in the statement of the argument, there's by the definition of objective, this such and such. Well, what's the definition of objective? I mean, in this context, and I think one of the things that is common is the assumption that what objective means is that it's mind independent, like it's out there in the world, it is what it is, irrespective of anybody's views about it, perspective on it, uh, and so on. So it's sort of, <clears throat> uh, it's part of the furniture of the world, as sometimes people put it, it's just there. Uh, and that, in this context, that's not what objectivism uh, thinks of, is that, that's not how objectivism would characterize what objective means. When we talk about objective reality, like in a metaphysical uh, context, it's that's what it means. It's mind independent. So like the universe is what it is, whether you like it or not, <laughs> whether your viewpoint of it is correct or mistaken. So it, it is what it is. But on, in the context of values, uh, that's not what objectivism means by uh, objective. So if, if, you're, if you think of objective means it's out there in the world independent of consciousness, and then you say, yeah, but there's a sense in which there's no such thing as values if no one actually values anything. So it takes an, uh, an input from a consciousness and of uh, having a perspective on this is good for me or this is bad for me or whatever. Uh, there's a perspective which there are no values unless someone actually wants something or thinks it's something is valuable. Um, so then you say, well, for something to be objective, it's got to be independent of a perspective on it, that a consciousness has on it. And yet values require a perspective from a valuer. Um, and so there can't be any objective values. But again, that's, that's not uh, 
that kind of argument's not coming from objectivism's perspective on what it means for a value to be objective. Um, so, I mean, for, for, for Ayn Rand, uh, for a value to be objective, uh, it means that it's, I mean, this is how Ayn Rand characterizes it. It means that it's chosen according to a rational standard of value and it's validated by a rational process. So these are acts of consciousness. Um, so yes, it definitely requires an act of consciousness to identify something as a value, but something, so various things that might be valued, they do stand in a kind of causal relationship to an organism's life. So it's like water, whether you, whether you value water or not, water is a requirement of human life. There's a call, factual causal relationship between the water and the continuance of human life. You can not want to live and not care about water. And so I don't, I don't want to live. So I don't care about drinking water. And so it won't be a value for you in the sense that you don't value it. Um, and in that context, it wouldn't be a value for you, but that doesn't mean the causal relationship disappears that value that is a requirement of human life. So once you, once you really make the choice to like, I want to live, then what it brings into context is, well, then there are a lot of facts that I need to know. Like, what is this relationship? What is this thing's relationship to my life? Does it hinder it? Does it harm it? Does it further it? Does it impede it? And then all sorts of factual uh, um, uh, issues come into play. But it does take uh, an input from consciousness. So I want to live. And as a result, I want things that help me do that. And that's, you know, how you get into the whole issue of like values and morality. And that's why you need guidance in life, like what to choose, what to do what diet <laughs> I have to get back to that but it's, it's that's what brings in this sort of perspective but i don't think it's true to say um values come into play when uh a, a living organism has a certain perspective on certain things to say that it's perspective dependent in the sense that it's subjective um it requires an input and an evaluation from a living being um but it's its factual relationship to the organism's life that is the kind of the anchor between it's that is why it's not subjective it's like if you if you're if you're trying to live there's a factual causal relationship between these kinds of activities and these kinds of goals and your actual life and that's really the anchor uh, yeah so the questioner also brought up a follow up and and kind of asked to compare this this argument to an example that Ayn Rand gives in her essay, The Objectivist Ethics, about an immortal, indestructible robot. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on that example and, and how it's related to the issue that we've been discussing? Yeah, so this is, this is an example. It's uh, page 16 of the latest edition of The Virtue of Selfishness. It's in the chapter, The Objectivist Ethics. And the, the example, um, it's it's pretty short. It's about a par it's a paragraph long example. It concerns a immortal, indestructible robot that can, you know, move itself around in the world, but nothing it does or that happens to it affects it really in, in any way. Um, and she makes a claim that that this robot wouldn't have any um, any value. So that's the that's the example the questioner is asking about. Um, so <clears throat> one thing to say is that um, the way that questioner raises this uh, robot example is he, he describes it um, as an argument 
so I think the first thing to say is that the robot example in that essay is not an argument or part of an argument. There's um, the few paragraphs before the robot example are the argument in favor of the conclusion that value depends on life. Um, the robot example is supposed to clarify that, help you understand the meaning of it or the implications of it. It's not part of the positive case in, in favor of it. Um, and I, I don't think it really touches on the same issue that the questioner is asking about either. The example is about the relationship between um, life and value, not between sentience and value. Um, so th those are two different, um, you know, not unrelated, but they're different uh, issues. Um, so that's, that's, I think, all, more or less all there is to say uh, about that. And Aaron, did you have anything to add? Well, yeah, I mean, I think in the context of the uh, kind of addressing the question in the podcast, I think that's, yeah. you know, all, all to say, that's, but that's what this I mean, there's certainly, yeah, because there's certainly more to say about it, like, because there's, 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 there's <laughs> sure, 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 sure. <laughs> so there's the question of um, life being the standard of value and man's life being the standard of moral value. And so there's more to there's So the issue of life is the standard of value is the wider issue. Um, it, life is the phenomenon that gives rise to the whole issue of something to be valuable. Uh, and so there's something right about what the, 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 the person who posed the argument is, is assuming is that, yeah, it is true that, I, I mean, objectivism certainly thinks that in a world of rocks and rivers and space dust, like in no living organisms, there's no, there's no right and wrong. There are there's no, no values. values. Yeah. yeah, no values at all. So it is true that it's the phenomenon of living organisms who face a fundamental alternative of life or death, joy or suffering, pleasure or pain that produces these alternatives that, uh, that uh, an entity that has to act in the face of an alternative has to say, well, which ones do I embrace uh, and which ones do I avoid? And that brings up that whole polarity or whatever you want to call it. It's the, that duality between the pro-life and the anti-life. Uh, and Ayn Rand identifies that this is, that's why life brings this up. It's that choice between these two things. It's, it's an alternative uh, between life and death uh, and its harbingers, if you want to put it that way, you know, um, and yet that's the, then, so it's the yardstick that you have to, that a living organism would have to use. Now for many, for non-human organisms, for the most part, they, I mean, they, they have it pre-programmed in them. So they kind of pursue certain kinds of things and, and some animals, some higher animals learn on the job, so to speak, <laughs> a bit about what hurts them and what doesn't hurt. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> um, you know, but for human beings, it's really like, you're not born with that. And so it, the issue of choosing to embrace life and choosing and selecting values and trying to find the relevant knowledge that you would need to acquire in order to know how to even make choices, the issue of choice becomes a big deal when it comes to thinking about ethics and which values to choose. And that's also what brings into the issue with, isn't it subjective if you're choosing and you're sort of and the reality doesn't just decide for you. It's, well, what reality establishes on its own, irrespective of you and your choices and your perspectives is the causal relationship between certain things and your, and your continued existence. Uh, that's not up to you. That's yeah. just set by the nature of reality. But what you then have to contribute is, what's my perspective on that? What are the things I want to embrace? And yeah. Yeah, and I take the robot example to be isolating that causality part. Um, because part of the example is that the actions the robot takes 
have no effect on himself. Um, so nothing's it's kind of in that example that, yeah, nothing's at stake. The causal relationship between the external world and the continuation of his uh, motion, his existence is, is severed in the example. Yeah. Let's move on to the third uh, issue for the for this podcast. Um, and the questioner who submitted this question writes, when is aid to others rational? More specifically, how do I evaluate whether the emotional benefit I get in aiding others is rationally based, assuming the premise that emotional benefit can be a rational basis of action? Okay, maybe we'll divide that up a little bit. I mean, I think this is also another question that arises in the context of the fact that objectivism regards the pursuit of one's own rational self-interest as the essence of morality. So it's an egoistic morality. So then this raises the question, yeah, what about other people and, and so on. Um, so this question about what about helping others, when is it rational? Uh, when is it uh, kosher, so to speak, <laughs> from an objectivist perspective? Um, and I think the short answer to that question about when, when is it rational is, the answer is, well, when it's in your interest, you know, when you're pursuing a rational value, um, how do you evaluate when the emotional benefit uh, you get in aiding others is rationally based? Well, I mean, then you have to think about, it can't just be, well, it feels good, right? So I guess it is good, you know, that's certainly not the objective's perspective. Um, so you have to ask yourself, you know, why am I doing what I'm, what I'm doing? Uh, what is it I'm trying to achieve by it? Um, so, I mean, I mean, I'm a teacher, right? I mean, I teach philosophy. I've been teaching other things for many years. And so I love teaching. I love helping other people. It's one of the most enjoyable things that I do. But a lot of this is it's in the pursuit of a career that I love. Like if I hated philosophy and I didn't like the kids and I didn't like the students and it was, I hate university life or whatever it is, it's like, you know, then it's like, oh, why go help these students? Because they don't know about philosophy. That's not a goal. You know, for me, it's I'm, I'm pursuing a rational value. I mean, the education of students about a subject that I think it's super important for them to know. It's made a big impact on my own life. I know how important it is to people uh, for that, that people know more about it and they're better equipped to think philosophically and so on. Um, and it's also the enjoyment of my ability to teach. Um, it's so there's a, there's a there's a whole lot of things that are self-interested, rationally valuable, and so on. So if I have a student that I think is really promising, yeah, I'll probably spend more time with them in office hours, maybe let give them much more freedom in terms of their ability to contact me and discuss things. And, you know, but then you could also have a student that's really struggling with the material. They're not, they're not quite as good. They're not quite as equipped, um, but they're really, they're trying to understand. And you're, what you're honoring there is Here's, here's a mind trying to grapple with something, trying to understand and, and, and not getting it. And you want to help that. You want to encourage those. That's a real positive value in life. Uh, and maybe they're not super cut out for certain kind of fields or whatever, but, uh, but it's, you want to encourage that kind of thing. And also as a teacher, this is like, I'm, I, I want to get better at how can I explain this to someone who's maybe less equipped, uh, you know? And so you have to ask like, what is it you're doing? Why are you doing it? Is there a rational value you're actually pursuing or honoring when you're doing it? Or is it just, um, you know, you're raised in an altruistic culture and it's sort of, you know, you're going to get a positive emotional feedback from doing things that you think are moral. 
And if you think altruism is moral, you'll get a little spike, or maybe if you go, you know, you know work at the soup kitchen or something. But that again, the, the spike that you get doesn't mean it's right. It means you're getting positive feedback emotionally from what you take to be your values. So the idea is to try to get your values aligned with what's actually rationally supporting your life so that the feedback you get is related to that, not the opposite. Yeah, so if the, if the question is, when is it rational uh, to aid others? Um, I agree, you know, if, if you think objectivism is true, the example is gonna, the answer is gonna be when it's in your self-interest. Um, but then, the, so beyond that, it's gonna matter who the people are and what the what it means to aid them. I think like in part of part of like answering the question in any specific case, that's what you're gonna ask yourself. So um, when is it rational to help your friends versus when is it rational to, like Aaron was saying, uh, volunteer at the soup kitchen, you know, spend your spend your uh, Thanksgiving um, giving um, turkey dinners to the homeless or something. Um, I mean, in those, in those, those are different cases and you're going to have way more egoistic reasons to help your friends than you are to help strangers. So it, it part of how to, the answer to this question is going to be, what exactly do you mean by aiding others? Like what others, what kind of aid, um, if you have an egoistic perspective on this, it's going to come down to what value are they to you? Um, you know, Aaron, you, you know, well, I was going to comment on just the kind of idea that, um, you know, people take pleasure in helping uh, at the oh, soup yeah. kitchen. Yeah. So they take, if somebody says, I work at the soup kitchen um, and I enjoy it, it's, you know, I get a sense of pride, let's say, out of helping. I sacrificed my Sunday to the less fortunate. Um, does that make me, I've heard people say this, that it isn't that that's a selfish reason to do it. Um, have you ever heard somebody kind of have that idea? Like, yeah, well, yeah, it's, I get take pleasure in helping people. So I guess I'm kind of, you know, like a, a everybody's selfish kind of idea. Um, but I think it's, it's relevant as Aaron pointed out that, well, if you feel good about helping at the soup kitchen because you think you're morally obligated to sacrifice your Sundays um, that's not really an egoistic motivation, even if you feel that kind of effective, positive affective state as a response, um, as a response to it. If egoism is true, then it's false that it's good to sacrifice your Sundays. So, yeah. <laughs> so the pleasure you're getting out of it is kind of misplaced. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's not going to be, I feel good about it is a, sufficient explanation for uh, or a sufficient reason to help somebody i mean that could be part part of it hopefully you feel good about doing good things but yeah and there's another thing that's it's a little more uh, there's another aspect of this it's a bit more tricky introspectively in other words it's there's a, it's a respect in which part of this is harder to conceptualize so um I'm a pretty benevolent guy. <laughs> I actually enjoy helping people and I'm kind of, I don't know, gregarious isn't the right word. Um, I, like, I like people and I like interacting with them and um, uh, on all sorts of levels, but it comes very naturally to me and it's not 
not everybody's like that, but for some reason it's, it's just natural for me. Like, uh, you know, you're, you're walking down the grocery aisle or someone, some shorter person, they're trying to reach some box of cereal and they can't quite reach it. And I always have it. Yeah, here, here you go. You know, I don't run around the grocery store trying to find people <laughs> to help, but it's just that you're passing by and it's a kind of a, it's a kind of a, a, a courtesy that's pleasant to, to do. And I I'm taller and it, it, I'm, I'm able to do that and I'm happy to do it. And, uh, you know, it's nice to be able to do. And so when you're doing that, it's like, well, what's the rational value that I'm pursuing? Do I want this lady to then do something for me? And it's, well, of course not. That's not <laughs> the way you think about it. These things kind of flow naturally out of um, a certain kind of um, uh, respect for other people, which comes out of a respect for yourself. So there's a certain in which like uh, you have a certain self-respect and it, there's a kind of, you look on other people as they're, they're, they're like me in effect, or at least potentially like me and, and, I don't know. I don't. I don't have a negative view of them, and so I kind of. I'm more likely to go do something like that now. If you ask, well, what's the value you're trying to achieve? That's harder to conceptualize. You have to really think about that because it's not like some concrete. Like, well, maybe they'll let me in front of them in the in the line at the cashier. Like, no, that's ridiculous. Um, but it's more. I'm. I don't know how I would put it. It's. I'm enjoying. I'm living in the kind of world I want to live in. I'm engaging with other people as I think people should engage with each other, at least in, in the general principle. I, it's not like some obligation that if you walk past it, you're supposed to do something because objectivism, no, no, that's not true. But just if I had to introspect about my own actions, it's something I would have to say it's something like that. And I think there's a real value in that. That's it's just harder to put your finger on is like, oh, this is what it is. This is what I'm after. Cause you don't think of it as I'm after something. It's just, it flows out of a certain perspective on life and on people and on myself and the kind of world I want to live in the way I think people should interact and the kind of benevolence that I, I don't know that I want to live in that kind of world where people are better like that and more, they look on themselves more as potential allies and not potential threats. Uh, you don't have to be a poly. One of the way to, one of the two ways to make that like if you if you value a world where people are um, mutually supportive and polite and courteous, one of the ways to make that value real is to actually be polite and courteous and support other people. It'd be bizarre if you say, "Oh, I, I really want a world where everybody's polite," and then you're just this jerk who <laughs> cuts cuts in line and like. Some old lady right. asks you to get a cereal box down from the shelf and you kind of smirk and shrug your shoulders <laughs> and walk away. Like <laughs> that's not living your values. If you value, uh, if you value a world of polite cooperation. And, yeah, it's kind of like honoring your values in action. Yeah. So maybe as a last follow-up, uh, the, the questioner was also interested if, and the questioner also wanted to know what measures they can take to determine whether any specific aid they're providing to others is uh, based on irrational emotional benefits uh, versus irrational emotions. Do you have any thoughts on measures that one can use to determine the irrational from the irrational? Well, one thing you can do is just state to yourself explicitly what emotions you're experiencing. So if you're um, volunteering at the soup kitchen and you kind of feel the sort of um, the 
I'm such a great guy, I'm better than the average person kind of feeling, the feeling of moral superiority. That probably tells you that there's part of why you're enjoying this is that you think it's the right thing to do. And then you want to introspect on, well, what do I mean by it? Is this the right thing to do? What, do, what does that mean to me? Where, where does that sense of moral rightness come from? Um, so I think that's, that's the first step is because it's sometimes say, I feel good about it. Well, I mean, that's not really, there's a lot of different emotions that could be, there's a lot of different positive emotional states. So you want to figure out which emotion you're actually experiencing as a first step. Yeah. And as part of being explicit, what is the, what is the rational positive value that I'm trying to achieve? What am I really aiming at? And I think that's when the one's going to be harder to specify if what you're doing mm -hmm. is something that's coming out of something irrational or something that is altruistic. I mean, the question, when is aid to others rational? I mean, it's, this is coming out of, there's a wide expectation just saturated and with the culture saturated with altruism. The idea that, well, you guys are saying it should be about self-interest, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about other people? Cause that, that's the, that's the, that's the immovable point, right? Well, it has to be able to account for that. Like, what, what would you do? And it's, that's why that question always comes up. Um, and when you start in looking at it more from an objectivist perspective is why is that a fixed point? Like, why is that the unalterable thing that must somehow get in there? And if, otherwise it's not a valid moral theory. I mean, that's the saturation of altruism in the culture that, that makes this a, a prominent issue. But it's a rational, what is sensible questions? Like, well, wh when is it uh, rational? And the idea is, well, when it's, when it's in your interests. Um, but you can't take that too narrowly uh, to mean, you know, I do this for you, you do that for me kind of thing. Um, and that's what we've been trying to explore a bit. There's some of the, the richness of the way to think about that kind of issue. Mm -hmm. You, all right. You and close this out. Thoughts, first, yeah. All right. I, yeah. I, all right. I, I yeah. Don't. That's okay. I think uh, we're at time. Let's wrap yeah. up here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I uh, just want to take a moment to thank those who support uh, ARI, our, our donors, and, and those who make this podcast possible. We really appreciate it. Um, if you are interested in any of the topics we've been discussing today and want to continue the conversation, we're going on to Clubhouse right after we get offline. From this podcast it's the ayn rand club on the clubhouse app uh so if you want to talk about uh health and fitness the objectivity of values helping other people uh you have questions or comments about those uh please join us right after the show on clubhouse um we also have uh, a couple of resources that we wanted to mention that are kind of go deeper into some of the issues that we talked about today uh, so there are two essays from Ayn Rand that we wanted to mention. There's her essay, What is Capitalism, in, which is in her book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, and is also online at that link, uh, bit.ly slash what is capitalism. And the other essay we wanted to mention is uh, The Ethics of Emergencies, which is in her book, The Virtue of Selfishness, and also online at bit.ly slash virtue of selfishness or is that i think that's maybe a link to the book and not the essay i don't know um sorry uh next week join us on the podcast when we are going to talk about uh ayn rand the challenge of rethinking conventional wisdom and aaron will be here again next week to talk about that along with uh ankar gate 
So look forward to that topic next week. Um, and I've just been informed that, yeah, that that link for the ethics of emergencies to the book and not to the essay, which is not online. So it's clarification on that. Um, if you uh, if you want to get sorry if you want to get more content from us uh, and support our our channel, please subscribe and click the bell icon, which will uh, give you notifications when we go live in in podcasts like this. Um, and if you have questions or comments, if you want to ask questions for future installments of this this series, which is a regular series that we do, um, email us at newideal at einrand.org. So that's our show today. Uh, thanks, Aaron and Mike, for, uh, for being here. And uh, thank you all for watching. And see you, some of you on Clubhouse. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.